Hello, and welcome to a very special podcast that is part of a series I am leading on diversity, equity, and inclusivity with CME Outfitters. Today's CMEO cast is entitled Health Inequities in Vaccine Optimization. I'm Dr. Monica Peek, and I am the Ellen H. Block Professor of Medicine in the section of General Internal Medicine. I'm the Associate Director of the Chicago Center for Diabetes Translation Research and the Director of Research at the McLean Center for Clinical Medical Ethics, all at the University of Chicago here in Chicago, Illinois. I would now like to welcome my dear friend and colleague for many years, Dr. Monica Vela, none other. She's the Professor of Medicine at the University of Illinois Chicago of College of Medicine, Professor of Medicine, Director of the Hispanic Center of Excellence, and the Associate Editor for JAMA Network Open. Monica, I am so honored and just delighted to have you joining us today, and I'm excited for our discussion about a topic that has been near and dear to my heart since the pandemic started. Absolutely, and I am so appreciative of the opportunity to discuss this with you, Dr. Peek. Thank you. All right. Um, I, I do want to remind our audience that this CMEO podcast is really just a continuation of our initiative to address unconscious bias, health disparities, and racial inequities. This is not the first time. We are building a comprehensive library of educational activities addressing these important issues, and today's activity continues this discussion in vaccine optimization. On this slide are just some of the titles of activities in the series with links to each of them. To view any of these programs, simply click on the activity title. If you participate in at least three of the programs in our DNI Hub, you will also be eligible to receive a digital badge demonstrating your commitment to education on diversity, equity, and inclusivity. So let's jump in with our learning objective for today's program, which is to analyze the influence of unconscious bias, health disparities, and health inequities on vaccine optimization. As we begin to address disparities in vaccination, I do wanna review some foundational points regarding historical racism that can help us all remember how we got here. We've done previous programs that cover these topics in depth, and those programs can also be found in our DNI hub. But I wanna recognize that we would be doing a disservice if we didn't take a moment in each of our programs to recognize that we have a groundwater issue that we have to address. And that is that uh, structural racism, um, is really ingrained um, in everything that we do, um, every place that we work, live, and play, and that it affects so many things. So it affects the social determinants of health that we are currently sort of uh, talking a lot about as far as uh, food insecurity, housing instability, all of those things. They're disproportionately um, determined by structural racism, which populations are more likely to have those things. Uh, structural inequity, structural racism also impacts health uh, care provider bias, which Dr. Vela is an expert in. Um, it determines not just the social determinants of health, but the toxins and exposures and things that are in the environment that communities live in, which also directly impacts health. So that gets to the indirect effects of systemic racism or structural racism and how that leads to things like discrimination within the healthcare system where there's deviation from what we call standards of care um, within uh, between populations um, based on race and ethnicity where we start to see manifestations of uh, disparities in health outcomes. Um, partly due to increased psychosocial stressors that cause pathophysiological changes, um, some of the mental health outcomes that happen. And then just because of the, dis the disparate care that happens, we start to see disparities in health outcomes from those as well. And then the long-term effects of systemic racism um, impact patterns of behavior where we um, lead to decreased retention in healthcare systems. So that when we get specifically to things like vaccines and we wonder why some communities are reticent to receive the vaccine, um, are less likely to be retained in care or to seek care, um, we then have all of this historical um, backdrop that we're fighting against um, that, uh, that, that, that are issues that we have to address. So to rebuild trust, to try and address these, these, these issues that have been going for a long time. So the, these are things that um, 
So how we got here is really important to the work that we're doing presently um, in trying to address these issues. So Monica, let's, let's focus now on racism in medicine to discuss the impact of structural racism on vaccination optimization. And can you talk us a bit about some of the reasons for disparities in vaccination coverage? Absolutely. And I so appreciate that you start always, Dr. Peek, with providing the context for the conversation. I think it's very easy to skip over the context and go straight to action items, but it keeps us from reaching for higher goals. It keeps us from understanding how we got to where we are today. Um, and so I'm just going to highlight a couple of the things that you said. First is that provider bias takes us a long way to creating disparities, in particular in vaccination. How does that happen? Well, provider bias remains a, a, a really big concern in the United States and elsewhere, um, in particular because of the sociopolitical climate and the rhetoric that we are hearing, and because we are facing as a healthcare system an inordinate amount of burnout and feelings of depersonalization, which always makes bias go on the rise. We also need to recognize that this bias comes from us teaching within our profession racialized medicine. You know, all these algorithms that include race um, need to be uh, gotten rid of. Alongside of that, we recognize that there are significant um, disparities and inequities in the physician workforce. And so we're not seeing enough of our patients' identities reflected in our providers. Um, alongside of that, I think it's important to recognize that um, insurance status is um, also driving disparities in vaccination status. We know that many states did not adopt the Affordable Care Act, and um, many more people remain uninsured in our southern um, states. It is also true that insurance remains highly dependent on occupation and that there's significant occupational segregation in this country. That leads us to seeing whole swaths of our populations without primary care providers and without a primary care home. Um, and so it is very unlikely that patients will be able to develop trust with the profession, with a single provider, when they live in health professions shortage areas, right? Um, all of this is driven by structural racism. And so it becomes really important to recognize that this mistrust stems from our history and also our present day, right? Um, and so it is really incumbent upon us, it is our responsibility to become trustworthy. Absolutely. Um, I think there's a what the pandemic has sort of expanded the conversation um, to, you know, this idea of, you know, why is there so much mistrust to like, <laughs> there's <laughs> a valid reason for that. And what are we doing to regain our ability to be trustworthy? Um, you know, and so I think that is where a lot of the conversation is going right now. Um, how can we try our best to rebuild that trust? What would that look like? What are the elements of trustworthiness? Um, because it's not only important for marginalized communities, but because we now have a better understanding that we're one ecosystem, it's in everybody's interest <laughs> for, Black people to have trust, Black Absolutely. and Brown people to have trust in the healthcare system. So, um, Absolutely. you know, I think it's so important as providers that we meet our patients and their communities where they live, where they work on their own timeline, and also really understand what their experiences have been and where they share those experiences with each other and where they get their information, their education about, um, about diseases, about vaccinations, about how trustworthy we can be, right? And so as providers, 
And as you know, as physicians, we need to make sure that we partner with other healthcare workers, in particular those healthcare workers that are most visible to our patients because they live they live in the same communities, they work alongside our patients. Um, and so who are those people? They are the nurses, they are the pharmacists, they are the dentists, they are really all those um, healthcare workers on our team um, that are the most visible, that spend the most time with our patients in their neighborhoods and communities. And we can meet them there. We can meet them in um, community centers, we can meet them in places of worship, we can meet them at pharmacies and pop-up clinics, and really, you know, where these vaccines are newly being administered because the pandemic changed where people are accessing not only their vaccinations, but information about vaccinations, including social media. Exactly. I talk a lot about trusted um, people, spaces, and places. And one of the things, and so that is exactly what you're talking about, essentially, how can we use the existing infrastructure that we have and think about who in this space, place, um, and what people are, are trusted in the community and how can we uh, maximize those? And one of the things I was uh, mentioning someplace in the last few days is that there's already a racial gradient um, because of structural racism and inequities within any clinic where the physicians tend to be white and the medical assistants tend to be um, uh, Latin, Black, Asian, depending on what neighborhood you're in. That, even if you can't afford you know, to bring in additional community health workers, those are the people who are most like the patients that that community is serving. And so those are the people that likely know the patients because they're their neighbors, you know, they're doing the same thing uh, that, that, that their patients are doing. They may, because of their job, uh, they may not be, you know, be paid very highly. They may be suffering some of the same issues around social determinants of health and food insecurity, even though they're working in the hospital um, that our patients are. And so leveraging those connections is really important. So thank you for bringing that up. Um, those conversations that we have with our MAs, our LPNs, our, RP, our RNs, you know, the shared spaces that we have with them to communicate, the language that we're using around vaccination is so important because they're the first people patients see when they enter the clinic, right? And so if they are brought into a room and um, they're discussing vitals and getting vitals, that is a golden opportunity to say, you know what, I got my vaccine and um, make sure you ask your doctor about the vaccinations that are available today. That way the patient is prompted they have some trust coming into the room as they come in to see us and we can bridge that conversation. One thing I also wanna bring up is this sort of tension between vaccine hesitancy and vaccine access. And you know, the national conversation leaped into vaccine hesitancy before there was even vaccine access. And much of the issue was access before there was even hesitancy, people were clamoring to get the vaccine. And even now, um, we are still doing vaccine pop-ups um, with some of the work that I'm doing in community settings. And there are people who are extremely marginalized um, who are coming and they're saying, thank you, thank you. I've been trying to, I've been going to various, you know, Walgreens and places and I'm having a hard time getting the vaccine and, and I'm you know, they're, they're coming to the food pantry for food and woo, I can get a free vaccine too. Right. And so I still think even when there is access, it's still for people who have a challenge, you know, who don't have a regular primary provider, like you were saying, access is always sort of relative depending on your, you know, your, your financial situation and the other resources that you have. And so, right. um, Absolutely. Yeah. I, I can't agree enough. The narrative surrounding vaccine hesitancy really was played up in a way that led so many people to point to um, individual decision making um, 
and, and to blame the people who did not have access for vaccinations for their lack of vaccinations, right? And, and it's the easiest out to say, well, that person doesn't want it, that person doesn't trust us, that person wouldn't take it if it was available to them. But we need to flip the script because the reality is that both you and I know that every time we've entered a community, vaccinations in hand, people have lined up around the corner to get that vaccine and have been incredibly grateful mm -hmm. that we've been there to deliver it. Um, and so I think that's what needs to, to be shouted from the rooftops is let's make it available and then let's talk about education. Let's talk about trustworthiness. And when we've dealt with all of that, let's talk about individual choice because right. it's not an equitable choice if the vaccine is not available. Right, right. So we take the, the most sociopolitical um, easy narrative for the far right, lift that as a top line, as opposed to addressing the real challenging issues that are more prevalent around access and sociopolitical reasons for mistrust, given all that the government has done, you know, and don't want to talk about those issues. Right. And in, in, in elevating that conversation and pushing the individual choice narrative, we are harming we are harming patients and we are actually buying into structural racism, right? Exactly. Because we're ignoring all, everything else. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, Monica, that's why I love you so much. <laughs> <laughs> so as you noted, um, Monica, stemming from the pandemic, pharmacies are now regarded as a central location for vaccinations. Um, while some pharmacies may be more accessible to some, disparities still remain. What are some inequities seen with specific vaccines? So many. Um, you know, starting with COVID, which we've been talking about now for two and a half years, we, um, we know that there are lower rates of vaccination amongst minoritized people in this country. We know that the impact is significant. So we know that um, age-adjusted mortality rates for Latinx people um, are much higher, 77% higher compared to white people in this country, 67% higher amongst black people in this country compared to white people, and then um, even higher amongst indigenous American, Americans in this country. We know that when it comes to the flu vaccine, the, the highest vaccinated group, so amongst white Americans, the vaccination rate only reaches about 50%. And then it drops from there for Black Americans, for Latinx people, and for Indigenous peoples. Um, and, and those are really big disparities that carry with them a significant amount of burden when patients do become infected with COVID and um, influenza. And so we need to start normalizing adult vaccinations in this country across all populations, but in particular, those who have the lowest vaccination rates, because we can't, we just cannot take one more burden. Right. I will say that my um, medical assistant has taken this on as her personal mission. And so I was in clinic last week. And every patient, because they have the ability, what we've done is given them uh, the medical assistance ability to put in the orders now for these vaccines. So they don't have to just ask and then wait for me to put in the orders. They can put the orders in themselves. So every patient I saw had already had their COVID, uh, bivalent COVID booster and their flu shot. And, so, and so I was like, uh, you, oh, Stephanie already gave it to you. Stephanie gave every one of my patients their vaccinations. <laughs> and I was like, this is great. And, and so she's like, oh, already done, already done, <laughs> you know? And, and isn't it amazing how impactful she can be? Yes, indeed. Relative to indeed. other providers? Yes, because the flu shot is like, okay, flu season, you know, I'm usually like rolling up my arms. Okay, here we go, here we go, you know, done. And I had a hundred percent flu vaccination rate and COVID booster rate last week Fantastic. you know yeah and so yeah. the idea of having our support staff working at the top of their game gives them an increased sense of autonomy and purpose in the clinic and it makes the whole team more effective works for our population I mean we have to be more creative in how we're thinking about addressing these issues in a real-time way yes I had a fascinating conversation with a patient just this week 
I walked into the room and um, said, you know, I have some vaccinations for you. Guess what I have available? I have the bivalent COVID vaccine and I have the flu vaccine. He said, I'll take the COVID vaccine. I don't want the flu vaccine. I never take it. And I thought, wow, what? what's what's going on here and so I took a step back and I said tell me more tell me you know teach me why you're so ready to take the COVID vaccine but not the flu vaccine and what he said startled me so he said you know for years I came to my doctor and I said um, I don't want the flu vaccine because it makes me sick and my doctor would say to me that's not true the flu vaccine did not make you sick period when I came in to get the COVID, COVID vaccine, my physician said to me, you know what, it's gonna make you sick for about a day or two. And I felt like, yes, this person's telling me the truth. I know this to be true. Whereas when I came in with the flu vaccine, I was told I, I'm not telling the truth. And so I feel like there's something funny going on with the flu vaccine and I don't want it. When we fail to validate our patients' concerns, when we don't listen to what their experiences are, or we invalidate them, we are creating mistrust. Absolutely. And so, you know, I bet you a million dollars that when Stephanie, your MA, walks in and someone says, the flu vaccine always makes me sick, she probably says, hey, me too, but then I'm better the day after. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's what we need to do. We need to learn from our patients. Absolutely. Absolutely. Can you talk more about the disparities in the influenza disease burden? Absolutely. Um, so when we look at um, influenza uh, death rates, hospitalization rates, or rates of landing, unfortunately, in the ICU, we know that um, people who are Native American and Alaskan Native are two times much more likely to die, unfortunately, from influenza. To die, right? Not just have a bad outcome, but to, to actually die. We know that that rate is also higher for Black people in this country. It's 1.7 times higher. And for Hispanics, it's 1.8 times higher. And we can talk about why. We can talk about the lower rates of vaccination. But we should place that in context with people who come from marginalized communities, live in communities that have much higher rates of um, pollution, much, um, you know, higher rates of asthma, um, are much more likely to live in crowded homes or in homes that um, are falling apart, right? Um, and, and so the disease burden is going to be higher. We also know that these um, minoritized populations are much more likely to be um, essential workers. And so their exposure risk is much higher. I came into my office here at the University of Illinois and realized it had not been cleaned in a few weeks. And what I realized after asking was that we lost many of our um, uh, cleaning staff due to COVID, right? Same thing is true of influenza. Mm -hmm. The burden is much higher. And we, we can't just stop and think about hospitalization rates or even death rates. We got to think, what does that mean to the family if this person is the primary wage earner? Um, and if this person is not well insured, what does that mean as in terms of a financial burden for the family as well? So the impacts just keep coming, right? And, and it's up to us to say stop. Right. I think that's a... Um... That's something that's really important to think about um, when people are already marginalized, the financial impact of health um, is so much larger. It's not just, oh, I'm sick, but the loss of income and people don't have sick days or family leave and they may be they're more likely to be supporting many other people in their family network their social network and so the ripple effect um for a much larger you know community is big and then that community is more likely to be 
a marginalized population where there are many other people like them, you know, right. who are in the, in the same situation. Um, so it's just, uh, so that's how, you know, COVID managed to just knock out entire communities. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, it's a lesson that we've learned before. We've mm -hmm. learned it with influenza, right? Mm -hmm. So COVID is now with us. It's, it's, we're on the third year. It's not going away anytime soon. It will be like the flu. And what have we learned from the flu? We've learned that over 10 seasons from 2009 to 2019, Black, American, Indian, Native American, and Hispanic patients were most affected by severe influenza, again, with higher rates of hospitalization, ICU admissions, and in-hospital. We're not even counting people who died outside of the hospital, higher rates of in-hospital death. And so are we going to learn from those lessons, and are we going to recognize how important vaccinations truly are to our communities in stopping um, with COVID what has been going on for decades with influenza. And we've become so inured to the losses with influenza. I'm hoping we don't do that with COVID, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure um, because the bulk of the losses are people who have by definition been invisible already, you know? And so um, that, had this, that was my concern at the very beginning of the pandemic that ultimately it would be sort of ghettoized and sort of concentrated in pockets of poverty and then the rest of society would go on. We would open yep. up, we would stop masking, we, you know, it wouldn't be an issue, but COVID would still be sort of circulating in these areas, um, still killing people in these areas and, and no one would really care. Yeah, and not only killing them, we're keeping whole populations of people in poverty, oppressed, mm -hmm. right? Look at what happened with education during COVID. Yes and who was able to access the internet and who was not. And who were brought back into the classroom, students in private education were brought back much sooner than students in public education. So we, we are creating those very disparities that we are trying to put out um, by providing disparate care um, and disparate vaccination. Um, accessibility, we are creating more poverty um, and in the very same populations, right? Um, yes. We are driving this and, and we need to get out from behind the wheel and turn the car around. Absolutely. <laughs> so uh, what, I'm, what I'm interested in, because I'm, I'm not a pediatrician um, and I rarely think about RSV, except for when my kids were little, like, do they have it? Um, are there Tell me more about disparities in RSV and whether or not it has similar impacts to what you were just talking about related to COVID and education and some of the pediatric outcomes. Talk a little bit about RSV. Yeah, so sadly, it's the, it's the same story, different too. Okay. Right? So we see the same disparities related to um, respiratory syncytial virus. And unfortunately, we don't have a vaccine. Right. right. We have only public health measures. The narrative around RSV is that it's a virus like the common cold. It is not. It causes much more of a, uh, a burden, um, in particular to those populations that already, um, again, have higher rates of asthma, face higher rates of pollution, and are much more likely to experience respiratory distress with a virus like RSV that causes high degrees of inflammation in the respiratory system. So black children have a much higher RSV associated hospitalization, hospitalization rate than white children. They are, um, and Native American infants do as well to the tune of 2.5 um, times the higher hospitalization rates with severe consequences. Um, including inflammation and bronchiolitis, and then subsequently bacterial pneumonia. 
The season for RSV will also um, shock you because the RSV season is greatest or longer in days that include um, disproportionately higher percentages of Black people. So in states like Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, North Carolina, and South Carolina, RSV lasts for 23 days, right? Um, and again, we need to look at the downstream cost of that. that. Fascinating. It is fascinating. The, the downstream cost of that burden to parents and lost sick days. The number one reason for a mom missing work in the United States is a child with an asthma exacerbation, mm -hmm. right? So if the child is missing school days and mom is missing work, we are placing these families at risk for losing the very job that's providing the insurance or um, loss of family income and then loss of education. Because when a child misses a couple of days in a row, and you and I both know this, they fall behind. They're often not ready to return when they do return. And then they don't feel like they're conquering the universe and doing their very best. And, you know, they end up not liking school if they're chronically ill. You know, that uh, my family has asthma. And I remember the stories of my uncle who had asthma really bad growing up and him having to stay home and my family being concerned that he wouldn't live and his best friend died of asthma. And my grandmother was a domestic worker and we, at the time, they didn't have a car. And so she had to walk miles to work. And so when she had to take days off, it was a huge thing. And she had to take so many days off. And so all of the things that you're talking about are things that my family lived in. You know, I take for granted my, my, my uncle, he retired recently as a dean from the business school. You wow. Know? Wow. But his story could have been so very different, you know. Um, Absolutely. And, and I appreciate so much you being vulnerable and sharing your personal stories, Monica, because the data doesn't tell us the stories of the individuals and their contributions to society. Your family, you yourself, have contributed so much to this American society, to the medical profession, to medical students, to research, but your stories tell us what you've had to overcome as a family because of structural racism and yet how much you've contributed, right? What if we had removed all of these burdens for all the black and brown people in this country? Where would we be as a society? Yeah. Your stories, your individual stories matter, but I'm grateful that you're willing still to share them with us. I'm so appreciative. Thank you. Thank you. Well, let's move on to another joyful topic, uh, <laughs> HIV. <laughs> Can you talk a bit about that? Because um, that's another disease that we know has really disproportionately affected marginalized communities. Absolutely. Um, and talk about HIV prevention and outcomes. Yeah. And again, uh, again, we have to talk about HIV all the time and everywhere that we go. And we have to talk not about individual behavior, but what's available. Because the treatment for HIV and the prevention for HIV are so different than when you and I were in our yeah. 20s and learning about HIV for the first time, right? Radically different. We have PrEP now, we can prevent it. But guess what? Awareness of PrEP amongst white populations is twice as high as awareness amongst black populations. It's 34% compared to 16%. We're doing something wrong, right? We can't talk about individual choice when there's not awareness, when there's not availability, when there's not accessibility, right? Let's not go there. Um, we need to, 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 to create equity first, mm -hmm. right? 
um, before we allow that conversation again about hesitancy and about um, individual choice out into the ether. Um, so again, the data only carries us so far, right? We can sit here and talk about how black men are six times more likely to acquire HIV in their lifetime and black women uh, black women's HIV lifetime risk is seven times, 17 times greater than white women, but that doesn't tell us the story, right? right? When you walk into a patient's room and you have not discussed sexual practices, you can't begin to discuss PrEP, right? And until we create a space where both patients, but also providers, because how awkward are we? <laughs> are comfortable enough discussing these issues, we're not gonna get where we need to go because one group of patients going to come in and demand prep. The ne next group of people who already feel marginalized for many, many more reasons are not gonna come in and be open about their sexual practices and they're not gonna come in demanding anything, right? We need to put it on the table. We need a, right. top, a topic on the table and the medications on the table and the vaccinations on the table. And, and we need to be open and say, you know what? I am here to serve you. How can I be of service today? That is such an important point um, that people's willingness to disclose their sexuality um, is going to keep us from providing the care that they need. Absolutely. And that probably driving a lot of the reasons that they're unaware of these services because yes. of what we're doing and not doing about creating safe spaces in the patient provider relationship in the healthcare context. And this gets right back to our own implicit bias, right? Exactly. So it's not even our awkwardness or, or, you know, how as, you know, Americans don't like to talk about sex. <laughs> I read, a, I read a, um, a paper recently that raised the hair on the back of my neck because um, it demonstrated that patients are really smart at noting which providers carry implicit bias. They are as good as an implicit association test. Yes. Right. And when you ask them, how did you detect that implicit bias? They, you know, they're not going to say, I detected that implicit bias because, you know, I ran my own test. No, it's the little things. The provider didn't sit down. The provider didn't look me in the eyes. The provider didn't wait for me to answer. The provider didn't believe me when I told them that I got sick from that influenza vaccination, right? Um, the provider doesn't validate my concerns, right? We speak too quickly, we move too quickly, we don't lean in and listen. And when we don't do this, those things, we are showing ourselves, right? Right. And so it, it comes back to us full circle. Mm -hmm. And we're gonna keep seeing these disparities unless we address our own implicit bias and all of the structural racism that's in our systems. And I'm just going to give a shout out to your review that you led um, and the conceptual model that you created about addressing implicit bias and the need to not do so in a vacuum. That unless we are also thinking, oh, look, you just talk about it. <laughs> Why well, am I? I have to say, Dr. Peek is on this paper as well. Um, and so, what we co created was a model demonstrating that as we bring physicians up through the health professions education system and we train them. We train them in a, a, a system of very limited diversity, right? We don't have enough physicians who look like our patients. We train them in a system that teaches them racialized medicine, right? We teach them to put race into algorithms. We don't talk enough about disparities and implicit bias. And then we put time pressure on them, right? We have them carry a heavy cognitive load. And then when it comes to trainees and students, we don't, we're not very nice to them. We don't treat them well. And so we put them in this environment where bias is allowed to just blossom and flourish, 
right? And then we have them see patients and they'll go in and they'll see a patient who has hypertension and um, they'll instruct the patient on everything we taught them. They'll provide prescriptions for antihypertensives. They'll tell them to go out into their you know, living space and um, seek out less stress and seek out the green spaces and um, lower the salt in their diet and give them many more directives. And the patient goes out and they take their medication, right? Some patients go out and they take their medication. They seek out the green spaces. They lower their stress at work. And they come back and lo and behold, their blood pressure is well controlled. And so we as providers pat ourselves on the back and we say, I'm so fabulous. I, you know, got to improve this patient's blood pressure. I'm so good at my job. I love my patients. And then comes in a very different patient. And we fail to recognize that this patient's lived experience is very different than our prior patients. And we give them the exact same advice without taking that into account. We give them the same prescription, not, check, not bothering to check whether the patient can afford the prescription. We send them out to reduce the salt load in their diet, not bothering to check in about you know, what's available in their neighborhood and whether there are fresh fruits and vegetables available in their neighborhoods. We send them out to access green spaces and exercise without checking to recognize, you know, are there green spaces in their neighborhoods? Are there places for them to exercise? And then they return and lo and behold, their blood pressure is not well controlled. And so what do we say to ourselves? Do we say, oh, I didn't do a good job? No, we say, well, I know I'm a good doctor because I took care of that other patient. Must be something wrong with this patient. And we compound our own bias, right? And so we need to stop that. And, and this is why it's so important to have conversations with our patients about their lived experiences, about the social determinants of health, and about what, what they live from day to day so that we can meet them where they live with prescriptions that make sense, mm -hmm. with recommendations that make sense. Absolutely. So unless we can take into account the larger structural inequities, the individual things that we do um, are going to be less effective. Absolutely. So I want to uh, transition us into thinking about some positive things on the horizon. Um, yes. Talked about RSV and HIV. Um, HIV has some positives in that we have PrEP now, um, but we are starting to have uh, some vaccines that are in development for both of these viruses that we currently don't have um, available on the market. Can you talk a little bit about um, what's going on in vaccine development for both of those? Yeah, so the exciting thing is that um, there are vaccines being developed, and not only are they being developed, we're, we're already in phase three of development. That's, yeah, that's like right near <laughs> Right, for RSV and HIV. Um, and again, we have to think about the context in which we roll out these vaccines and who we're enrolling in these studies, right? So um, phase three means we're actually providing these vaccinations to humans, right? We want to make sure that those trials are being conducted in a diverse group of individuals so that when we actually have the vaccines available, we can say to our patients, you know what? People from across this country used this vaccine and found it to be safe. And we have to make sure that the context in which we roll it out is one in which Americans have begun to recognize that vaccines are not only part of children's lives and part of their preventative health care, but also adult health care, right? We have to normalize vaccinations in adults and new vaccinations in adults, not just as an emergency or an urgency like during a pandemic, but as part of preventative healthcare. Right. Well, I'm super excited. Me too. I mean, I remember when HIV first came out and they were, you know, it was like COVID, let's get a vaccine. And that was in the 1980s. It's 2022. Yes. And so there have been so many failed attempts. So the fact that we have a phase three HIV vaccine is miraculous. So I'm, I'm super excited. Um, so let's, uh, talk more about what we can do to minimize disparities. 
um, you're an expert in disparities reduction. Tell me uh, what we can do. Right. So I think it's everything from the individual provider level all the way out to these systems that we keep talking about, right? So as an individual provider, I think it's really important to address the social determinants of health with our patients one-on-one. -on -one. Have a conversation. You know, what, what is your lived experience? with each of these social determinants. How accessible are vaccines in your life? And what has your experience been with the flu vaccine and with the COVID vaccine? What can we expect to have happen? Um, and, you know, I think having that conversation now is super important because when the RSV vaccine comes and the HIV vaccine comes, I want my patients to be ready. Oh my gosh, and that so, HIV vaccine is gonna be a big sell. Absolutely. So I'm already talking to patients about how COVID vaccinations are going to be like flu vaccinations. Mm -hmm. Probably for the, the rest of our lives, we are going to be getting both the flu vaccine and the COVID vaccine seasonally. Yes. And that's what we need to expect, mm -hmm. right? Um, we can start talking about how other vaccines are being developed and they're going to come a lot quicker. And how lucky are we? That's Let's right. line up. That's right. Yeah, and I think <laughs> so beyond um, assessing our individual <laughs> patients' social determinants of health, reviewing with them what their experience has been with vaccines, where they can access them, how quickly they can access them, asking them about their experience with those vaccines and what the boosters have meant for them, and also what the disease has meant for them and their families, right? What has the impact been? I, I do that now with almost everyone I interview, not only in my patient rooms, but also when I'm interviewing medical students and, and healthcare workers that I plan to work alongside with, I ask them, what has your experience with the pandemic meant, right? Because it's a way to create trust. Yes. And, and a way for me to know what can I expect from this person, mm -hmm. given what their experience has been. Mm -hmm. I think we need um, also as providers to be willing to go into maybe areas of education and avenues of education we haven't explored before. So will we be willing to, to be on social media and address some of the um, misinformation that's been out there, right? Um, and patients will come in and they'll show me a YouTube video. I had a patient come in and show me a YouTube video with magnets. Um, you know, there was for a while this myth yes. about how COVID was advertised. And I had a young man, he was 17 years old, pull up the video and say, tell me what you think about this. And we talked about, you know, learning from social media. It was a really important, you know, appointment for both of us. Mm -hmm. Telehealth is another big area that we need to explore in terms of delivering education. It's a prime opportunity to climb into patients' homes. And I learned so much more about my patients through telehealth. Yes. You know, I had one patient who introduced me to the dogs she had been talking to me about for 10 years. She said, now I get to show them to you, right? And it was fantastic that I'm a big dog lover. Um, but to come into their homes and maybe educate more than the patient, you know, meet their um, significant others and their loved ones and have a family conversation about these issues, so much more fruitful than one-on-one -on -one yes. in yes. a setting where they're already frightened. Um, and then integrate all of those avenues as um, part of our everyday um, routine and opportunity, you know, recognize the opportunities as we move through our days to educate patients about vaccinations and, you know, the downstream impact of some of these um, diseases like long COVID. Very important, very important. Um, so I do my homework, right? So I read as much as I could about what I need to tell my patients about getting the COVID vaccine and the flu vaccine on the same day, mm -hmm. right? What, how will their immune systems be able to handle it? Will they have a day of downtime? Mm -hmm. You know, everybody's a little bit different is what I like to tell my patients. Mm -hmm. And what you're experiencing is very much um, a, of a concern to me. And I will validate your experience. And, you know, it may be that you do get sick the day after. That's what we need to learn to expect. Wonderful. Monica, all of this shows just what a wonderful clinician you are and how that impacts 
the work that you're able to do as a health equity leader um, and researcher. Um, and I'm just so honored to be your colleague and friend. Back at you. <laughs> so we're gonna put today's discussion into action that we can all do to provide more equitable vaccinations. So we're gonna talk about SMART goals and those are ones that are specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and timely. So little nuggets that we think that we can each do that aren't overwhelming. So first, identify health disparities that may impact vaccination optimization for each patient, including prior healthcare experiences, social determinants of health, patient unconscious bias, and health literacy. Second, develop individualized treatment plans that consider health disparities, screening, diversity, modes of education, healthcare accessibility, vaccination options, and social support needs. Third, educate patients and community members to minimize inequities in vaccination optimization. Patient and community education materials need to reflect diversity and learning preferences while considering health literacy. And finally, integrate all members of the healthcare team to develop holistic action plans with individualized SMART goals for all patients. Dr. Monica Vela, enough for joining me today and to remind our audience that you can join me here for more CMEO podcasts, live webinars, case discussions, and more, including an upcoming CMEO briefcase in vaccination optimization. You can find out all about upcoming live events and view previous ones on the DNI Hub link uh, that's shown right here. Here are just some of the topics we've covered so far, and we will be adding new content every month. Please remember to collect credit for the activity by using the apply for credit button that's currently on your screen. Again, thank you, Monica. Thank you, thank you, thank, thank you. Thank you, Dr. What a, <laughs> what a pleasure. pleasure today. Oh my gosh, I had so much fun. Um, Thank you to our audience for all of your work in providing equitable and holistic care to all of the patients around the globe. Have a wonderful day. Have a beautiful day.